Brethren, Colossians chapter 1. And if you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, please do so. Colossians chapter 1. And I want to read verses 24 to 29 of Colossians 1. Colossians 1 and verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of His body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to His saints to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power which mightily works within me. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. We have been working through a summer series, as you know, titled A Mission-Focused Church. And we are specifically, beginning last week and then today and next week, we're talking about what a discipleship culture means and looks like. What do people mean when they say, it's in my DNA? You ever heard of that statement? Maybe you've used it. It's in my DNA. The other day I was reading a, uh, just a small clip of a an interview uh, of an athlete, a particular athlete, and at one point he said that when the reporter asked him a question about his struggles physically, he's had a lot of, um, just a lot of um, inability to, to play as much as he'd like to play, and at one point the athlete said, look, at the end of the day, I'm a fighter, it's what I do, it's in my DNA, he said. What do people mean when they say that? I think that what they mean is, it's in my character, Right? It's who I am. It's the essence who I am at the core of my being. And they might describe a particular characteristic about themselves. It's in my DNA. And I think in a similar fashion, brethren, when we talk about discipleship, that particular theme, that's really what we want to be about as Christians. It should be, discipleship should be part of our DNA. As we talk about a culture of discipleship, we're not talking about a a Kempis Hernandez philosophy. We're not talking about anybody else's philosophy. We're talking about a biblical philosophy of ministry. Amen? Amen? A discipleship culture is what the church should be about. It's what we should be devoted to. It's part and parcel of who we are. It's in our DNA to be disciple making people, to foster a discipleship culture among us. And that's what we begin to consider last week from this particular text, which is really chapter 1, verses 24 to 29 of Colossians is a re-articulation of the Great Commission, which is something that all believers should be a part of. We are all to be concerned with fulfilling the Great Commission. Also, while Paul had a unique ministry, he was an apostle of God sent to the Gentiles in particular at a particular uh, period of history where the church was birthed. Even though his ministry was unique, the principles that are outlined here in verses 24 to 29, and in particular verses 28 through 29 we are looking at, are very applicable to us as well. This is the Great Commission really restated, 
reworded, rephrased in different terminology when you stop and consider what is written here. And what we glean is that the mission-focused church is not just one that is focused with evangelism, but also moving beyond evangelism. We want to see people who come to know Jesus assimilated into the life of the body so that they might grow and mature into greater Christ-likeness. And so since this is the case, we asked last week this question, how do we foster this type of environment? What does it look like where there exists a discipleship culture where people, there's this atmosphere where people come to know Jesus and Christians, now followers of Christ, can, can thrive in the church, grow to be more like Jesus rather than survive? What does that look like? We began to see this last week that there are some helpful principles that we glean from Paul's philosophy of ministry to help us really define this and answer this question. Helpful principles that help us foster and cultivate a growing discipleship culture in our church. And remember our working definition of discipleship, okay? Discipleship is the ongoing process of cultivating intentional relationships for the purpose of growth in Christ in the context of the local church. I'll repeat that. It's that ongoing process of cultivating intentional relationships as believers for the purpose of growth in Christ, and it happens first and foremost fundamentally in the context of a commitment to a local church. And that latter one is very important for us, especially in a non-committal type of a culture that we're living in, brethren. Listen to me. Participation in ministries outside of your local church have their benefits if there's no healthy church easily accessible to you. And that goes true for any believer all over our country or all over the world. If there's no healthy church accessible to you, you may be involved in some capacity or another in some evangelical nonprofit organization that is not the local church. And there is a, a room for that in certain third world countries, even where there's persecution and local churches can't visibly, physically, presently exist like this and meet this way. So there's good rationale for that. But if there is a healthy local church and you're a part of one, then your first commitment should be active participation in your local church. I hope that that's what we're about. Amen? You should be actively involved here first and foremost. We should never adopt a sort of smorgasbord mentality where, you know, we sort of were consumer driven. And we look for other entities outside of our local church where we get to pick and choose what we want to take and what they offer for us, and then we go that direction instead of our local church. We should never do that. We should never have this attitude. You know, if, if another entity outside of my local church offers me a better product, then I'm going to pursue that. No. No, brethren. That's not the way that it should be. How about being a part of the solution in your local church rather than being part of the problem? How about you rolling up your sleeves and helping your local church to become even more effective in whatever areas of ministry that you see are deficient? Not as you define them, but as the Word of God defines them. And so that latter part of the definition that I gave you in the context of a commitment to a local church is huge for us. And I hope you listen to the message loud and clear with regards to this. We are unpacking this 
really doing this series on a discipleship culture. And so last week, we saw first that at the forefront of a discipleship culture among us is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is first and foremost. Amen? A discipleship culture is, if you're taking notes, and we uh, expanded upon this last week, it is a Christ-centered discipleship culture. It's a Christ-centered discipleship culture. Look at the beginning of verse 28. Paul says, we proclaim Him, meaning we proclaim Christ. In other words, no matter who we are, even the great Apostle Paul, it wasn't about him. Ministry wasn't about Paul or any other of his partners Articular um, mentioned in Colossians chapter 4. He says, our central preoccupation is telling people about Jesus. He is central in everything that we do. That's got implications as we saw for evangelism. We're always concerned in a discipleship culture among us as to where people are in their relationship with God. Have they trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ? Genuinely, we never assume that everybody who's amongst us has really trusted Christ and is following after the Lord Jesus Christ. This Christ-centered discipleship culture also has implications for our edification ministry in the church. Right? Throughout the book of Colossians, even Paul expands on what living a Christ-centered life looks like for the believer and for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't ever move beyond Christ. We don't ever move beyond the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We are simply living out as believers the, the implications of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ for our lives in both salvation and in sanctification. We don't ever move beyond the Gospel. And so this was our first point last week. That we are to be a Christ-centered discipleship culture. But then the question becomes really, how does Christ lead His church? How does Christ uh, shepherd His church? How does Christ guide His church here in this world? Well, the answer is He does so through His Word, doesn't He? I mean, some people have the philosophy that Jesus guides His church primarily through ecclesiastical hierarchy like the Roman Catholic Church or other churches or other movements. Some people have the, the, um, the opinion that Jesus guides His church through mystical experience, which many of our charismatic friends were really flesh out, right? It's about mystical experiences. That's how Jesus is guiding His church. But we know in biblical Christianity that Jesus guides His church first and foremost through His Word. Amen? It's through His Word. And so we are to be a, a Word-driven church as we continue to consider what a discipleship culture means and what it looks like. That is really the second point that I want to bring us to. A discipleship culture is not only a Christ-centered culture, but it is a Word-driven discipleship culture, brethren. Write that down. It's a Word-driven discipleship culture. It should go without saying... But the Word of God is indispensable to the life of the church. And as you and I cultivate these relationships, we must never forget, brethren, never, ever, ever, that the, that the Word of God is to have a central place in our relationships with one another. It was C.H. Spurgeon who said of John Bunyan, he said, why this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere and his blood is bibbling. The very essence of the Bible flows from Him. That's a good one, isn't it? Prick Him anywhere and His blood is bibbling. What if people pricked you that way? Would your blood be bibbling? Is that really part of your DNA? You're a word-driven individual? A word-saturated type of believer? Or if people were to describe Eastridge, would they say, 
man, that is a word-driven ministry right there. Not only do they know a lot of knowledge, theology, but they're living it. They're actually fleshing out a word-driven ministry. And the way that they apply the Word of God in the context of their church, and the way that they reach people for Christ, and the way that they build into one another. Would it be said about Eastridge that we are a word-driven church this way? I want you to see this. If you look at the end of verse 28, you there verse 28? It says that everything that we do in ministry is for the goal and purpose of presenting every man, notice, or woman, or person, complete in Christ. Ultimately, brethren, per our definition, uh, discipleship is about moving Christians towards greater Christ-likeness. But the question is, uh, how does this happen? How does this flesh itself out in the context of the church? I think verse 28 answers this for us by means of two key words. We proclaim Him, and notice verse 28, admonishing every man or woman or person and teaching every man or woman or person. You see those words? Don't miss those two words. The proclamation of Christ now finds visible, practical expression in the life of the church through interpersonal relationships as we speak the truth to one another in love. Yes, Christianity is first and foremost about a a personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. But then this fellowship with Christ finds visible, practical expression, brethren, with real people, among real people in real relationships in His local church. Not just a universal church, but a commitment to your particular church family. Your local church first and foremost. In other words, if Christians are to grow and mature, then one of the key ways that this is going to happen is by means of Christians formally and organically speaking the truth to one another in love, developing sincere life-on-life relationships amongst one another. That must grow all the more in a discipleship culture. And it should not just be a few people. We should never have that us-for-no-more mentality. We should be an assimilating church. A church that desires others to come in amongst our fellowship at a high capacity and we're invested into others so that no one feels left out right, as believers. That should grow. And so note these two key words, admonishing and teaching. These are loaded words. Grammatically, admonishing and teaching modifies or expands upon the main verb, we proclaim Christ, right? In other words, they tell us, admonishing and teaching, tell us how the proclamation of Christ works itself out in the life of the church in real life-on-life interpersonal relationships amongst one another. It's a beautiful text, beautiful verse. Now, it's important to note that by using the two words, Paul is not primarily and only speaking about evangelism, though that is part of it as we saw last week, but he's really expanding beyond evangelism and he's primarily talking about Christian maturity. Right? Per the end of verse 28. In other words, the emphasis is primarily edificational. That of building one another up as followers of Christ. And so let's look at these two loaded words here, okay? Notice, admonishing. It's a beautiful word, admonishing. You probably are familiar with this word. It's the word nutheteo. Nutheteo literally means to, to put or place in the mind of someone. And depending on the context, the word can be translated in a number of ways. It can be translated to instruct, to advise, to counsel. But it's got primarily, in most contexts, a a corrective connotation, which uh, can be translated as exhortation, exhorting someone. Or 
It has the added idea of, of cautioning a person who has strayed from the path that honors Christ. Nutheteo. Of warning someone of the impending consequences of continuing down a particular harmful or destructive path. Nutheteo. Then there's teaching. See that word? Teaching from the word didasco, which means refers to instruction or teaching. It's the, it's the formal or informal impartation or communication of Christian truth or doctrine. Formally or informally. It's primarily a neutral word which has to do with positive instruction. And particularly of importance is that both of these words, brethren, are in the present tense. They're present tense participles. The present tense simply implies that these are to be continually, habitually, we are to be admonishing and teaching one another. In other words, we are to be characterized by this. This is a, a way of life organically amongst us. It's to be part of our DNA as a church. That we are continually, formally, informally, organically teaching and admonishing one another. Now this is where somebody throws up a red flag and says, well, isn't admonishing and teaching, right? Um, isn't, this, isn't this just apply to pastors? Isn't this Pastor Kempis' job? Or the other pastors or our elders or teachers in the church who are gifted? Or maybe it's the biblical counselors in the church who are to be doing only the teaching and admonishing. Eh, no. Absolutely not. This is not the case. Certainly pastors, brethren, and elders lead the way in, in formally proclaiming the truth publicly and privately. We understand that biblically. And even in bringing needed correction by way of admonishment, that might be the case even in unique situations which rise to the level of, of uh, um, uh, extra needed attention in a disciplinary uh, kind of a way, church discipline situations. Certainly elders and pastors lead the way in that kind of teaching and admonishing kind of ministry. But listen to me. Organically, this speaking ministry involves everyone in the church. Every single one of us. Each one of us organically in our relationships with one another, are to be speaking the truth to one another, are to be admonishing one another. If you go with me to Ephesians chapter 4, we see this. Go to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15. Beautiful text of Scripture. Great text. Someday we'll get to Ephesians and preach through that as well, okay? But listen to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 where Paul is talking about how does growth and maturity happen in the context of the church? He says that we are to be, brethren, believers, speaking continually as a sense, speaking the truth in love. Why? So that we grow up in all aspects in Him, in Christ, who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Notice, how does this happen? How does God use us as a means by which others are sanctified? It means that we need to be speaking the truth in love to one another. Great text. Growth and maturity in the body doesn't just happen. Yes, God does it first and foremost, ultimately, right? If God doesn't work through His Spirit, nothing happens. But God uses properly working parts. Pastors, elders formally, and all of us organically to speak the truth to one another in love in the context of life-on-life -life relationships. That's how sanctification and growth happens. And God uses us in an amazing way to accomplish that, brethren. Hence, hence the reason why you must position yourself as part of your local church to be physically present with other Christians regularly. 
You can't practice these things from Zoom. You can't practice these things by sitting on your couch and having coffee in your pantuflas. You know what I'm saying? Your slippers. You can't do it from a distance. You must be physically, visibly present amongst one another to practice the 60 plus one another's in the New Testament. You must be around one another. You must actively participate in the life of the church. That's one implication of this. If we are to flesh this out, obviously one way that we try to accomplish this even in this church is through our small group ministry. Small groups really facilitate shepherding and, and accountability. They are, they are hubs for mutual growth and accountability for your shepherds, your elders, to, to know that you are in a small group, that, to know that you're being cared for, to know that you're seeking to develop meaningful relationships. That's, that's a lot of, of the ministry for us. And so that's one implication. right? First week of September, by the way, we're going to be starting these back up again, uh, small groups, and potentially some new ones by the grace of God. Every single one of you needs to get involved. May we have the problem come September or in August as you're reaching out to, to, the, to the pastors and elders and, and Jennifer McGinnis, our admin at the, at the church. May we have the problem that there are so many people wanting to get into small groups that we need to, we need to somehow start some new ones. I'd love to have that kind of problem. We can get all of our elders starting a small group at that point, right? Every single one of us. So we want to see these things continue to Flourish amongst one another, brother. We need to be doing life together, formally and organically, be fleshing out a word-driven ministry. You know, people always talk about the importance of expository preaching, especially like in churches like ours. And you know what I say to that? Amen? Preach it. Right? As the pulpit goes, so does the rest of the church. If we don't have exposition coming from the Word of God and you're being exposed to the truth of the Word of God, we have bigger issues, right? But don't stop there. How about beginning to talk also about expository application? Not only expository preaching, but expository application. That is the ongoing application of the Word of God coming from the pulpit and all other pulpits in our church by means of life-on-life relationships where you are accountable to one another and you're calling one another to the carpet to live out what we are ranting and raving about on Sunday mornings or throughout the week from the Word of God, right? We need to flesh it out, brethren expository application by means of life-on-life relationships. One way that that expresses itself, obviously, is through our small group ministry. So admonishing, teaching, note, both of these words, by the way, appear here in Colossians. Go with me to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. Notice this. Colossians 3 and verse 16. Here he's addressing all believers, and Paul uses both words. He says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Notice that. That idea there, by the way, of letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. You know what that is? Let the Word of Christ, uh, let it make its home in your heart. The Word of Christ should not just be visiting occasionally, right? You kind of get in and out of your Bible reading and you clock in and out every single day, right? And then you boast about it or whatever, but you're not being saturated by the truth. He's talking about allowing the Word of Christ to, to make its home in your heart. Let it saturate your heart. That's the idea. Well, how is this to work itself out in the context of the church? Watch this. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. How? With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. There's our words. With psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart, hearts to God. There again is our organic speaking ministry right now, right there. Admonishing, teaching one another, encouraging one another. You see that? 
It's not just pastors and elders or counselors who are to teach and admonish brethren in the context of the church. It's every single one of us. We are all to be pouring ourselves and investing ourselves into one another in this discipleship kind of culture and atmosphere. Did you notice, by the way, the tool we are to use for mutual growth and encouragement there? It's the Word of Christ, he calls it. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. He refers to it, by the way, as the Word of Christ because this is in keeping with the, with the Christocentric emphasis of, of Colossians. But the Word of Christ there is, is synonymous with the Word of God. It's synonymous with, with the Bible. And so we are to be a Word-saturated people, a Word-saturated church. The Bible is to drive everything that we do in personal and in corporate life in the context of the church brethren. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is why everything here at EBC into the future all the more by the grace of God is to be centered on the Word of God. Preaching from this main pulpit and teaching in other pulpits around the church must always be centered on the Word of God and driven by the Word of God. Amen? I hope that that's the primary reason why you come to Eastridge. Because we are simply going to come where there's nothing innovative about what we do. We just open up God's Word. We explain it to you. We illustrate it and we will apply it to you and we will draw implications of the Word of God to your life. Isn't that what you want first and foremost? We are a Word-driven ministry here. Our small groups must be Word-driven. And the fellowship and connectivity in those particular small groups are to be fueled by the truth of the Word of God. We don't just meet to just catch up or talk about random things. More importantly, we meet to wrestle with the Word of God and how the Word of God applies to our lives having interpreted the Word of God accurately and precisely and clearly. We wrestle with our trials and how to live well under our trials by means of the Word of God and how the Word of God instructs us to do that. We need to wrestle with our sins and our struggles and how the, what the Word of God says concerning those and shapes our outlook of those sins and struggles, brethren. Our small group ministry must be a word-driven um, uh, ministry. Even our organic fellowship and relationships, the normal life-on-life -life kind of interactions that we have, we must be deliberate so that we are lovingly speaking the Word of Christ to one another, encouraging one another in the truth with a capital T. Our discipleship and our counseling ministry must be word-centered and word-driven. We believe in biblical counseling, brethren, and biblical discipleship because of the fact that the Bible is sufficient. The Bible is enough. We don't seek our answers from secular psychology in this church. We don't seek our answers from human wisdom. We don't even bring a hybrid of counseling and psychology to this church. That is not what this church will be about all the more into the future. Amen? We believe in the sufficiency of the Word of God. Jesus' Word is enough for all matters of faith and practice. And we want to flesh that out all the more. And so we're always going to be evaluating that and seeking to live that out personally and corporately. Even our men's and women's small groups, our hubs where the Word of God is to be studied together and mutually applied and wrestled with, all in the context of, of fostering life-on-life -life relationships in those particular hubs. So in all of these, God's Word must drive what we do. We understand that it's the truth of God's Word centered on the Gospel that is the primary means for people to grow in Christ's brethren. And so we apply God's Word together. This is our commitment. And can I add this? This is our commitment when it's even tough to say the hard things to one another. Did you hear that? Oftentimes, if we're going to flesh this out, 
We have to be willing to say what people need to hear, not what they want to hear. In love. In the truth. In fact, go with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 to see this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. And here's our word, verse 14. We urge you, brethren, admonish, nutheteo, admonish the unruly, encourage the fainthearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See to it that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Notice what Paul says in verse 14. We urge you, brethren, here are normal church family relationships. Sometimes people will need encouragement. The faint-hearted will need to be encouraged. And God, we need wisdom to know who needs encouragement. Sometimes people are simply just faint-hearted or rather weak and they just need to be helped and for us to come alongside of them and help them or to comfort them as faint-hearted individuals who just need encouragement. But other times, look at verse 14, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. Admonish the unruly. He instructs all believers here to nutheteo those who are, who are out of line, who are disorderly. Those who are in accordance with the Word of God are unsubmissive. Those who in attitude and action are insubordinate. To who? To the Word of God. Admonish them, Paul says. Instead of sweeping those things under the rug, those, that particular sin or ongoing pattern of sin or pretending that, that the sin isn't there, we are to engage our church family members who are out of line with admonishment, with exhortation. Boy, that's tough, isn't it? It's probably your response if you're humbly responding to this. Man, but I have my issues too. I have my struggles too. Where there's, well, there's issues with a little eye, brethren, and then there's issues with a big eye, right? Yes? There are the ongoing struggles with a little s, and then there are struggles with a big s. And we must engage those latter, both, but especially the latter ones. You get, you get my drift? We have to be engaging. We cannot simply ignore those things. We cannot sweep them under the rug. Subtly or actively. In no way, shape, or form should we do that. Instruction, cautioning, even warning them from danger. Don't go there. Stop. That's all of us. All of us are to be doing that. Not just your pastors and elders. Why don't you go back with me a few pages to Romans 15 to see this again. Romans 15. Romans 15 and verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, And concerning you, my brethren, again, brethren is a title uh, to believers addressing those who are in Christ. And concerning you, my brethren, plural, all Christians, I myself, says Paul, also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge. Of course, he's speaking about them being in Christ, right? And here it is, and able also to admonish one another. There's our word again, nutheteo. Able to admonish, nutheteo, one another. He says, all of you are able to do this. 
All of you, in fact, should be doing this. What's the implication? That when a Christian, a follower of Christ, sees another church family member out of line with God's Word, you need to lovingly come alongside of them with grace and gentleness and warn them and caution them and exhort them. You're able to do this, believer. You have the Word of God. You even have shepherds who love you, who will give you guidance and feedback if you need it. You have the Spirit of God working in you. You are able to do this. And the following is equally important. Why do you do it? Why do you do it? You know why? Because you don't want your family member to be spiritually unhealthy. Do you? Isn't that what you do for your kids? What type of father or mother biological father or mother uh, sees their kid uh, falling into some sin or some destructive path or harmful, and you just leave them there. You know what that's, that, that kind of father or mother is called? A bad father or mother. You know what I'm saying? What kind of parent does that? We understand even on the human level with our children, we don't want them to be, to go, be in harm. How come we don't apply that in the church? How come we don't apply that in the church where there's something called church family? Body life. In some ways, if you have non-believing biological family members, you can actually spend time, spend eternity with your church family rather than your biological family. Do you get that? If they're not in Christ, you will be with your church family forevermore, eternally speaking. Yet we don't apply these principles in the church with our church family when somebody's in sin. It should grieve our hearts when we don't do that, brethren. And it says something about our hardened hearts, our cold and indifferent hearts. Our hearts that are not, don't have a Christ-exalting perspective. We're missing it. We're not kingdom-minded enough when we simply don't confront those who need to be confronted in love, who are our f- fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So we do this because you don't want them to go astray. You don't want them to wander from the path of Christ, to get into trouble with your dad, right? With our Heavenly Father. You don't want them to do that. This is why you engage them. You engage them in love. You know what this requires of us? This teaching, especially admonishing kind of ongoing ministry with one another. This requires that you and I set aside your love of self and my love of self. We love ourselves too much. And so therefore, we are all the more concerned about what people think of us rather than what we need to do that is right and glorifies Christ. This also requires that you lay aside your your fear of man or fear of women, either one. You need to lay that aside. This requires that you lay aside your, your pride. The, who, I, who am I? You know, I'm imperfect. I, I can't talk to anybody about anything because, you know, after all, I have my issues. False sense of humility. Proud. That's what you are. You're more concerned about yourself rather than you are about your, your, your brethren and especially more concerned about the glory of God. Got to be very careful with this, brethren. We need to engage them with the truth in love. Paul did this in Acts chapter 20. You know the text. He's bidding farewell to the Ephesian elders there. He's not going to see them anymore. And he says at one point, he's talking about his ministry while amongst them. And he says, I did not cease, brothers, to admonish, to admonish each one of you with tears, he says. Note that. I didn't just admonish you. I did it with tears. There's the right kind of heart that we need to have. People, uh, Paul loved those people. 
And he knew that they needed correction, right? So he did it even with, with tears. He genuinely cared about them. Their sin, brethren, grieved Paul as a brother in the Lord, as their pastor. That's the kind of heart that we need to ask God to give us, you see, in the context of the church. So that we are word-driven in our relationships and not afraid to say the hard things that people need to hear and do so in love, with compassion. Yes, recognizing that you and I are also susceptible to some of the same weaknesses, if not all of them, right? Actually, all of them. This should be our heart as well. This word-driven ministry is all of our responsibility and a crucial one another in the church. Again, may I just hammer this home even more. This is not reserved for some elite group of Christians in the church who are the only ones called to do this in the church. In fact, there is no such thing as elite Christians in the church. None of us are. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all come in the same way, don't we? We're all saved the same way. Through faith in Jesus Christ alone, Christ is to increase and be exalted. We are to decrease. None of us are better than anyone else. Don't ever even allow that to exist in your mind even subtly, that somehow you're better than somebody else. Maybe because you've been around longer at Eastridge or you have the history of Eastridge or because you came from another prominent church. Listen to me. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Point taken? We need to walk in humility toward one another. So this is not a ministry just reserved for certain people in the church. When someone is in sin, don't first think to yourself, let me get the pastors or elders on that. Let me call the, the guys with the MDiv degrees, the Master of Divinity degrees. I've known many Masters of Divinity guys who are not pastors. Okay? I, not all Master Seminary or Masters or, or Seminary whatever are created equal. I've known many ACBC biblical counselors who are quality people. I've met many really bad ACBC counselors. You know what I'm saying? So we need to be very, very careful with setting forth categories amongst us that way. Don't think to yourself, who do I need to access to come and deal with this problem? No, you do it. You confront it in love first and foremost. You admonish your brother or sister in love. Do this. First, pause and pray. Okay? How do you engage? First, pause and pray. Pour over this before your Heavenly Father in prayer, right? As Christians, we have the tendency to talk to everyone about our pet peeves or concerns. Everyone except the Father, God, who is actually able to change your heart and do something about the problem. But we don't go to Him. We go to everybody else but the Father. With a capital F. First, pause and pray. Secondly, examine yourself. Before you engage, examine yourself. Make sure that your heart is in the right place. Are you doing this for the glory of God? Are you doing this out of caring concern for your brother or sister in Christ because you're really concerned for their spiritual health? You don't want them to be going off on a strained path? Third, search the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures. Is your concern a preference or a clear violation of God's Word? Is it an issue of preference or biblical principles? There's a difference, right? We may all have certain preferences, and those might be even biblically informed in one way that you might do this, but that doesn't mean that you need to go confront someone on your preferences. Don't ever make your preferences convictions to impose upon other people. Don't ever do that. That's legalism. That's what that is. Self-righteous legalism. So is it an issue of preference or biblical principle? Also, we should wrestle with, under this, searching the Scriptures. Is this something that can be covered? 
right? Not a particular pattern in someone's life or a serious sin that must be confronted every single time. I mean, if we, brothers and sisters, if we confronted every single sin amongst us, that's all we would ever do all day long. We should just quit our jobs and spend time in here. Let's confront each other all day long. That's not what we're talking about. Can this be covered in grace? Can this be addressed over time? Because it is something that they're susceptible to. All of this is word-driven, right? And then after all of this, then you're ready to engage the person with love and in gentleness. Listen, memorize Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Memorize that verse. Galatians 6 and verse 1. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, what does that mean? What does that mean? You who are spiritual, the, the, the super Christians, right? The superhumans amongst us. No, from the context, you who are spiritual, in other words, from Galatians 5, you who are walking by the Spirit, you who are yielding yourself to the Spirit's leading in your life, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Restore. Cathartizo, a beautiful word which refers to the, the gentle repairing of a broken or dislocated limb. How does a doctor do that, brother or sister? With gentleness. With gentleness. And what is the goal? The goal is to bring the person back to full effectiveness in their life. That's the goal of confrontation in the church right there. Restoration. Doing the hard work so that we want to see people operating at a high optimum as far as their spiritual walk with the Lord. Restore such a one. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself lest you too be tempted. See the heart? We engage in love with the goal of restoration, and we do so with humility. You don't confront people with instruction and correction because you're, you're irritated at them, because you're, you're outraged or annoyed about something personal that you're taking personally, not for the glory of God, or because you want to give them a piece of your mind or you want to let them have it. You know, I've heard Christians say, you know, that's just the way it is. That's just the way it is. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a gunslinger. I just say it like it is. You know what that's called? Fleshliness. There's no virtue in that. It's not just a personality thing. You're fleshly. You're acting sinfully carnal when you do that. The text says, tells us, do so in love. Do so in gentleness. Do so in humility. So note, brethren, in a church where we foster a discipleship culture, the Word of God drives everything that we do. We seek to uphold the Word of God in this ongoing mutual interaction with one another so that the Word of God is not undermined, it's not ignored. Why do we do this and why do we believe this? Because the primary way that Christ leads and directs His church and changes people is through the Word of God. Amen? Through the Word of God. Remember what Jesus said? Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then John 17, 17, Jesus prayed, Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Amen? We want to be, hopefully this is your heart, you want to be an instrument in the hands of the Redeemer, in the life of your brethren and vice versa, opening up your life for others to invest into you. I pray that that kind of culture and atmosphere grows all the more here at EBC, brethren, as we each make choices choices individually as families and collectively to move in that direction all the more let's pray father god we thank you for your grace and for your mercy and for your precious word which instructs us which convicts us which encourages us lord i pray that you would help us to be people who are about 
Life-on-life relationships leading to greater Christ-likeness all the more in the context of this local church. Father, I thank you for my brethren and for those who are living this out. Father, may that kind of atmosphere grow all the more so that more and more of us are actively involved and engaged in this type of life-on-life ministry and developing relationships. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.